Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. I'm Ido Vok, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. And I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 20th of January. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we're looking at the upcoming Olympic Games. What challenges do the Games present to China and the wider world? Preparing over such a long time is difficult, but the struggle is worth it. I wish you success in the upcoming Beijing Winter Olympics 2022. Then we look at NATO and Ukraine. We will not compromise on the right of Ukraine to choose its own path. We will not compromise on the... Uh, right for NATO to protect and defend uh, all NATO allies. And the very concept of spheres of influence. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, we are delighted over the moon today to introduce you to our new colleague, Katie Sallard, who, like me, is in Washington, D.C., and she is going to be covering China and geopolitics more broadly for us at the at the New Statesman. Katie, welcome to the pod. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm, I'm a regular listener to the podcast. So it, it's great to be on it. Well, now you're going to be a regular contributor. So um, one of the re- many, many reasons that we're excited to have Katie aboard the good ship New Statesman is that she is a China expert and will be covering China for us. You should read her writings on China at the New Statesman online and in print, but you should also tune into the World Review as you are doing right now to hear more. So today, Katie, we wanted to, to, to ask you about the Beijing Olympics, the Winter Olympics. They're somehow upon us. They begin, I believe, February 3rd. Last time Beijing hosted in 2008, I mean, I remember it was, it was seen really around the world as this great victory for, for Beijing and for China, and it was this incredible opening ceremony. It, it seems like the, the mood is slightly different this time and that the challenges are are different. Now, partly that's that 2008 was several years ago. The world is different. Um, but maybe you could speak a bit about the mood in Beijing and in China as they head into the Olympic Games. 
yeah, I mean, last time the the kind of mantra of the Olympics was this was China's coming out party. Um, this was China kind of marking it, it, its real return to the world stage. Um, this time is really going to feel the opposite of a party um, for a start. This is very much um, taking place uh, under under severe uh, lockdown restrictions, and it's going to have a very different feel in part. That's because of uh, the COVID pandemic, and in part, that's because of how China's political system has changed um, since the 2008 Games. The specific and urgent issue um, for the organisers right now, two weeks out from the Games, um, is the Omicron variant, which has now reached Beijing. Um, they have detected it, cases there, which it should be said are in, are in tiny numbers um, compared to what we would be used to um, here in the United States or in Europe. But nevertheless, a, a case of COVID and the Omicron variant uh, specifically reaching Beijing, and it should be said in an individual with no history of, of travel outside Beijing in the last 14 days, is prompting real concerns that there is community spread now in the capital um, just ahead of the Games. So we're seeing even more severe restrictions than were already in place um, being introduced. We have just heard that there are going to be no tickets sold. Um, the crowds are going to be organised, um, is the way that, that, that that's being explained. So I think we can expect to see you know, spectators from, from state-owned enterprises, from universities uh, filling the stands, but there will be no wider public access. And what was already a very challenging event um, is, is going to become um, much more so. The mantra that you hear from, from Chinese officials talking about this um, is that this is going to go ahead. It's going to be a great success. Uh, their watchwords are that it will be a streamlined, safe and, and splendid Olympics. And I think certainly it's going to look very impressive on TV, but this is going to be held you know, on, under very severe restrictions and within this uh, really quite comprehensive lockdown. It's, it does seem, though, that even with the restrictions, I mean, if, if the person who they identified as having been infected with Omicron had no history of travel, it's already in Beijing. China has pursued this, this policy of zero COVID. But it just seems like even by having the games, it's a tacit admission that that policy is not sustainable anymore. Or is that is that reading it wrong? Well, the explanation that's currently being offered, and, and I think it, you know, it's, it's really not seen as, as credible outside China, but the explanation that, that actually senior officials are now offering is, is that there's a chance that this infection came in by mail, specifically by international mail coming into the country from Canada. So they're now urging people to take great care, to wear gloves and a mask when opening packages, and to avoid it ordering international goods. I think that that's really an attempt to salvage the messaging here and to show that the zero COVID strategy is still effective because otherwise, how do you explain um, that this case ha has got into Beijing right now? There is very little evidence to support that outside of China. And certainly a public health expert I spoke to yesterday described it as absurd. But that's the way that they're trying to message it here is that it's not China's handling of the COVID pandemic that's the problem. It's the international community. How did China want this to go? Obviously, when China bid for the Games and Beijing won the chance to host these these Winter Games, obviously COVID didn't exist. And then COVID happened and China, it appears, pretty much succeeded in essentially stamping it out. But this new variant has meant that it, it has needed to tighten restrictions and, and these weren't going to look exactly as they had hoped, even with COVID. Um, but how was this meant to sort of play out? Was it meant to be a kind of victory lap for the Communist Party, proving that um, it had succeeded in its 
policy towards towards COVID, where where all of the world's democracies had failed, and that showed how strong China's political system was. What was this meant to look like before Omicron? So I think there were two real audiences for it, both both a domestic audience and, and internationally. And I think for for both, really, the message is, you know, China's handling of the of the pandemic has been superior to to the rest of the world. And that's because of its political system under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. And you've heard that message really quite explicitly, you know, going right back to, to 2020, talking about how China's political system really enabled it to, to respond to the virus in a way that other countries have not been able to. So the, the, the domestic narrative has been very much about you know, how well the Chinese Communist Party's leadership has held up, how this proves the superiority of China's political system, uh, particularly when set against what is widely portrayed as a kind of shambling and chaotic response in the West. So this was meant to showcase how China both recovered from the pandemic, um, how its economy recovered and how it led the world uh, in demonstrating how to deal with the pandemic and how to move on from it. But instead, what it demonstrates is that it you know, those victory celebrations were, were premature. The pandemic is not over. And there are very real questions now about how and whether China's zero COVID strategy is sustainable with Omicron now circulating to some extent uh, within China. And that, that's a problem for, for China. And it's also going to be a problem uh, for the international economy. Let's let's talk about that, because that's a really interesting question. Um, China is one of really, at this point, only a handful of countries which have very, very low uh, transmission, even if some cases do get past the border controls and so on. And while almost the whole of the world has moved towards a quote unquote, living with the virus strategy, which includes, you know, accepting that a certain number of people are going to die, but placing a lot of faith in uh, in vaccines over what are called non-pharmaceutical interventions, which is basically lockdowns and restrictions. Um, China, while it has very high vaccination rates, is still sticking with the NPI strategy of essentially attempting to reduce community spread to zero. And we've seen in, in the past few weeks the immensely high cost that that has with the lockdowns in places like Xi'an and so on. But I, I'm just wondering what the kind of noises coming from China are on the long-term strategy, because while obviously China has up to this point done much better than a lot of the world, for example, the US or Europe or whatever, it's much easier to see how those countries which did have quite bad initial responses, how their strategy of dealing with COVID looks like in the long term, and it's a lot more difficult for China. What what are you hearing from, from China on this? Yeah, I mean, I think the real serious and increasingly urgent issue now is how China deals with the pandemic in the medium and longer term. Its strategy was very much focused on on getting to the other side of this and being able to, you know, being able to move on from the from the pandemic and resume normal life. The lockdowns and the, you know, everything that went with that, the very serious consequences were predicated on the idea that, that there would be an end to the pandemic. But as other countries now move more towards a model of living with the pandemic, it's very difficult to see how China is going to be able to do that. I mean, there, there's a few kind of distinct strands, I think, to draw out of this. Um, the first is that China doesn't have access to the kind of vaccines um, that, that so many 
European countries currently do. Um, they are working on a domestic mRNA vaccine, but at the moment it, it, you know, it, it's nowhere close to, to ready to use. And the indigenous vaccines that they do have with uh, Sinovac and Sinopharm are just much less effective um, at containing the spread of the virus, particularly when it comes to dealing with the, the Omicron variant. So you know, they don't have access to, to the level of, of vaccines that are available elsewhere. There is very little natural immunity um, among the wider population. In part, that's because China has done such an effective job of locking down transmission. They, they have taken the opposite of a, of a kind of herd immunity response. But because they've done that, there's now very little natural immunity um, among the population. And the public health care system is just not able to cope with the, with the surge in cases that, that would follow a move away from, from zero COVID strategy. Um, there was a paper published in November by um, scientists at, at Peking University, a very prestigious institute in Beijing, looking at what would happen if China moved to, to a more Western model of, of opening up and, and predicted a devastating surge in cases that the paper talks about causing a great disaster within the nation. Um, so it's very difficult to see how they could move from this from the current zero COVID mass lockdown strategy to opening up without a really large scale public health disaster. And then there's the political side to this, which is that all this is taking place in the run up to an absolutely critical event um, in the autumn of this year. It's the Communist Party's 20th Congress when Xi Jinping is widely expected now to, to seek a third term in the leadership. So in the run up to that, really critical event. They need everything to go right. They want absolute domestic stability, which is the opposite of what would happen if, if they move from, from zero COVID to an opening up strategy. So it's very difficult to see how they do this. But if they don't, then we're going to see the current strategy, which, which includes, you know, 20 million people are thought to be confined to their homes as we speak now under the current strategy. You know, we will see that continue and we'll see implications beyond China in terms of the, the global supply chain and effects on manufacturing. I just have one last question on this before we move on, which is the United States and other countries announced a diplomatic boycott. The slight caveat to this is that the US is still sending several low-level officials and insists, no, no, it really still is a diplomatic boycott. China in response has said, stop politicizing the games. I think there are arguments that one could make on either side here, right? One could point to the tragedy of the Uyghurs and the so-called re-education camps and Hong Kong and Taiwan. Alternatively, one can say, no, this is just you know geopolitics between the United States and China in terms of the merit of the, the diplomatic boycott. China publicly has downplayed this. Do you think that the diplomatic boycott is really just water off a duck's back? Or is it another one of these things that are kind of going wrong now in the, in the run-up to the Olympics? China would certainly have preferred to have all of the heads of state there and to be able to showcase, you know, how much of a of a global player China is, you know, how how respected and how much of a global statesman its leader is. And um, so I think the kind of comments that we're hearing in terms of we've had Chinese officials say, well, you weren't invited. It's not it's not a diplomatic boycott because we hadn't formally extended an invitation in the first place. I think, you know, certainly they would have preferred that this diplomatic boycott not happen. I think the fact that the, the Olympics is now going to happen under such severe restrictions and within the context of the of the pandemic 
enables them to message that as, you know, this is probably going to have less of an impact than it would have done, you know, where all of these other issues not not happening right now. So I, I think it, it is less impactful than it would be. But certainly, you know, this is not in any way uh, how China uh, foresaw these these games taking place. Great. Thank you. And and I think listeners will understand from this discussion um, why we're so excited to have Katie on board and, and covering China. Well, from one geopolitical tension to another. Ido, would you like to introduce our next subject for discussion? Yeah, um, I thought we could talk about the the concept of spheres of influence and perhaps how rationally or not Russia's own views of its right to influence its neighbours are. Um, And I suppose slightly provocatively, Emily, given that you're the US editor, can I ask you, what would have happened in, in the Cold War if a country like Mexico, for example, had decided, freely decided of its own volition that it wanted to join the Warsaw Pact? What would have happened? Right. I think there's two ways to look at this question. There's the the short answer and then the longer answer. The short answer is that if Mexico had wanted to then, if Mexico wanted to today, obviously the United States would be upset to have its, its direct neighbor in a military alliance helmed by a geopolitical rival. Yes. But I think there are other factors that we should also consider. I mean, the first is that we actually don't need to look at hypotheticals because there was Cuba, which was a crisis. And actually now in the present day, you have Russia sort of flirting with the idea of putting military hardware in Venezuela or Cuba as retaliation. So we may see a non-hypothetical version of this in the not too distant future. The thing about this question is that often, and I'm not saying that you're doing it, but often people who ask it are, are, are sort of saying it to make the point that it's the United States and not Russia that is the imperial power. And I have no desire to defend American imperialism. But what I would say is that if Mexico felt its sovereignty was so under threat that it had to join a Warsaw Pact or something similar led by Russia, I would imagine that the same people making these arguments that, you know, that the United States is encroaching on Russia and Ukraine's sovereignty is not, not to be considered, these same critics of American imperialism would hypothetically object to whatever the United States was doing that made Mexico ask to be in the Warsaw Pact in the first place. And then the other thing that I would say before throwing it back to you is that I guess the reason that I think that this question can be, though I think it's an interesting one intellectually, but I think it can be a bit of a red herring in that it it takes Russia at its word in assuming that the reason that we're in the situation we are now is because Ukraine is joining NATO. Ukraine is not joining NATO. Ukraine is no closer in 2022 than it was in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea to joining NATO. And in 2014, Russia did not annex Crimea because Ukraine was joining NATO, but because Ukraine wanted to join an economic association agreement with the European Union. Now, if you want to say, well, those are the the same thing, that's fine. But the reality remains that that was essentially Russia saying, okay, we get to tell you what to do or who you can join militarily and also economically. You know, we can go back and forth on what NATO with the United States and Russia should have done in the 1990s or in 2008. But here in 2022, I think that those who say, well, if the United States just promised never to admit NATO, then then Russia would drop its designs on Ukraine. I think that that is perhaps a bit, a bit naive. Now, maybe the answer here is that the United States needs to drop any potential promise to one day admit Ukraine into NATO. Um, if the argument is, well, you know, we have Mexico and you have Ukraine, I don't actually think that that's an anti-imperialist argument. It's kind of worth taking this question 
relatively seriously. You know, I, I speak to very clever people who who really understand what the thinking in, in Russia is, and it goes something like this. First of all, the US is not nearly as seriously threatened as Russia will ever be because the US has a very, very favorable geographical position, which is that it's surrounded by two oceans and two pretty weak states on to its north and south. So it's not really inherently under very much threat, whereas Russia is between, you know, a big block on, on its west, the EU, a big block to its southeast, China, and as it sees it, also US encroachment through through NATO and so on. And more than that, Russia basically thinks that it does the same thing as as what the US does, except the US gets gets away with it and it doesn't. It thinks that the US pays lip service to the kind of liberal rules-based international order. Every country has the right to freely determine its own foreign policy and its its own orientations and so on. But when it comes down to it, it doesn't. And the US is very willing to break with international law when it suits it. Russia sees examples like Iraq. And it's it says that, well, maybe the US says that every country is freely sovereign and there's a sovereign equality and uh, a country of 300 million people has the same rights under the international system as a country of 4 million people. But actually, countries on the US's periphery understand very well that if they tried to change their geopolitical orientation in a way that would harm US interests, the US would be very willing to um, intervene and to, to take action against them. And in fact, it has, as you said, in Cuba, but also in Chile with, with Allende and, and so on. So Russia thinks that it's just doing the same thing as as the US and its fundamental underlying philosophy is, is the same. And I think it's kind of worth at least understanding where Russia is not necessarily sympathizing, but understanding where Russia is coming from on, on this issue. Of course, one has to consider the view of a, a major geopolitical power a major geopolitical nuclear power. And I, as I said, I'm not going to sit here and defend American hypocrisy or American imperialism. Does that mean that the United States should turn around and say, you're right, Ukraine, you're never joining NATO. It's not happening. Give it up. And Russia, you can do what you will. Right? Like it's it's one thing to consider it intellectually and to say, yes, your argument has merit. The United States is, is hypocritical. It's another to let that dictate NATO policy toward Ukraine, which as you said last week, would effectively be giving Russia a veto over Ukraine. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print, or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I actually want to bring Katie in now with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. That was quite good. Katie was right on. She was ready. I'm, I'm very impressed at your first um, You Ask Us. So our question this week is, what is the view from Beijing on the question of Ukraine and NATO? So I think in terms of official remarks, what we've seen in, in recent days is, is pretty brief, but essentially calls for the issue to be resolved through dialogue and consultation, which is China's preferred uh, approach to to most uh, international issues. I think underlying that, though, um, China certainly does not want to see conflict in Ukraine. There's a few reasons for that. I think China has pretty decent relations with Ukraine. It doesn't want to get drawn into taking sides with Russia. More broadly, there are enough problems um, in the global economy right now before, uh, you know, a major conflict um, potentially between Russia and the West. So what China will want to see in the external environment is stability, um, which is the opposite of conflict. Officials there will presumably be very well aware that Russia does have form on this, having invaded Georgia during the the opening of the of the Olympic Games in, in 2008. But I think, you know, the, the broader issues coming from it, you know, there's so much discussion of whether Russia and China are, are forming are forming a full scale alliance. You know, I would argue that this issue is one of the areas where we see, you know, why they won't. China has no interest in fighting Russia's wars um, and its interests are not served by some of the wars that Russia might wish to fight. Um, so I think what Chinese officials will want to see is everything short of conflict, um, everything short of what forces them uh, to take side and everything short of what is a further drag on the global economy um, is fine with them. They won't get involved. Um, and I think there's actually, you know, there is an argument that some level of what we're seeing right now, as long as it doesn't spill over into conflict, actually is is fine. You know, it won't be lost on Beijing that part of the reason the US wants to stabilize, normalize, return to predictability, the relationship with Russia, is so that it can refocus on competition with China. That's a great point. So as long as 
the United States is bogged down focusing on Russia, you know, as I say, as long as that doesn't actually escalate into conflict, that's absolutely fine by Chinese officials. Well, there's another wrinkle in this, which is that the country that the US has been really courting to counter China, India, probably does not want to see things escalate between Russia and Ukraine and the United States. If you speak to many, an Indian official, they will say, well, the reason that Russia is so close to China right now is that you guys, the Americans, sanctioned them You know, after 2014. Now, we could then go back and forth on whether that was Russia's fault for annexing Crimea or the United States' fault for getting involved in sanctioning Russia. But the view in Delhi is that that really pushed Russia and China closer together, which India does not want. Um, and and they make the case that, you know, we, India, can act as a go-between between the United States and Russia and pull them away, and we can all counter China. And I think that further American-European sanctions on Russia do not reverse that trend in a way that New Delhi might, might hope to see. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I think they are a line which is an unusual position for China and India to find themselves in, but that they would wish to see Russia not become a further global pariah and further sanctions that make it harder for India to acquire defense um, equipment from, from Russia and for China. Like I say, I mean, China... China will be forced to some extent to take a public position on this if, for instance, it comes before the UN Security Council, you know, they will have to decide, do they vote for sanctions against Russia? Very unlikely. Do they abstain? Do they vote against? So conflict will force them to take a public position, uh, which they really don't want to do. They are happy for this to stay on the, on the low to medium boil. But I think as with other issues, you know, like North Korea, uh, they want it to stay short of actual conflict uh, and short of escalating to, to the point of real physical violence. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us next Monday for an interview on a trial verdict that campaigners have called a landmark in attempts to hold former Assad regime officials to account for war crimes. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening, and until next time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.